a suzerain king says to the vassals, uh, here's what I've done for you, here's what I will do for you, and uh, I've defeated you, I've protected you. And then he gives them the stipulations of the covenant, which we've studied now for months, and he explains to them what they're to do. The stipulations began with chapter 4, verse 44, ran all the way through chapter 26. Those stipulations were divided into two parts. There were the general stipulations, which had to do with the general principles of the law. And you notice, of course, even in contemporary law, this is the way we think about law. You get the Constitution, which are the general stipulations, and then you get all the statute law, books and books and books in legal libraries that flow out of the Constitution and that provide the precedence that we need to try a case. And the same would be true in biblical law. You get the general stipulations, which were contained in uh, chapter 4, 44, through the end of chapter 11. When we picked up with chapter 12, we came to the specific stipulations that take cases. If, if uh, you're not to steal from your neighbor, well, here's how you handle his landmark. You know, That's a specific application of the Eighth Commandment and so on. Now we've come to the end of the specific stipulations, and now we're entering what's known as the section on sanctions. That is, what difference does this all make? What are the consequences of obeying or disobeying the suzerain king? Now what we're going to look at is is lengthy and uh, sort of grisly, if you will, when you look at the uh, curses that are pronounced upon Israel for disobedience. Uh, What we need to realize is that, um, generally speaking, what you see in the curses here and in the blessings, but particularly in the curses, uh, is typical of this second millennium uh, B.C. treaty form. There's nothing here that would stand out uh, or be more grisly than you would get with a treaty form. For example, when the suzerain says, Uh, No one shall rise up against me and follow another suzerain king. Then you'll have this in the sanctions. If you do, uh, you see this dead animal I've sliced up here uh, in this covenant treaty ceremony, you're going to look just like that dead animal in the little pieces and quickly. So the suzerain king doesn't want there to be any mistake that if the vassal king disobeys him, uh, he's going to be sliced up in little pieces. It's It's going to be grisly. So... That's typical second millennium treaty form. And Moses picks up with that treaty form and uses it to say that there are consequences in obeying or disobeying God. I I get confused. It was either Ravi Zacharias or Raju Abraham, but I think it was Ravi who said that when he was looking at the various religions in the world and trying to decide as a young man what it is he believes, he started off with the question of consequence. And he said, I could dismiss my study of several religions because fundamentally there was no consequence. For example, Hinduism or Buddhism. There's really not much consequence as to whether you believe or you don't believe, whether you practice or you don't practice. But then there are some religions like Islam, Christianity, where the consequences are very severe. And so he decided to study those. And then he looked at the historical reliability of each of those religions. Then, of course, as you know, uh, concluded that Christ was who he said he was and that he was 
crucified and resurrected on the third day and is Lord. But it's an important question to ask, what are the consequences? And one reason that all of our friends, workmates, neighbors, families, need to take, one reason they need to take seriously the Bible is that the consequences of nonconformity are extraordinarily severe. They're not unfair, but they're severe. And we'll see here in the covenant treaty that God has made with even his church, that the consequences are severe. As uh, Peter says in chapter 4, the judgment of God begins with the household of God. So when Jesus Christ comes back to judge, he begins with his own baptized people. People have grown up in Christian families. Those who are numbered among the people of God, that's where the judgment begins. And so it shouldn't be any surprise to us as New Testament people who are used to this sort of thing that we look back in the Old Testament and see, of course, it's, it's here very vividly revealed. Well, let's look at chapter 27. We'll start to make our way through it. Uh, and let's begin with verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall... Build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Let's look at this for a moment. First of all, the covenant must be remembered and renewed. This is what we see in chapter 27. The covenant must be remembered and renewed. And so it is with ourselves. We tend to forget, gentlemen. It's amazing. As I read through the Bible, and I've done so many times, every time I read through, I'm going, oh, I didn't know that verse was there. Or, ooh, wow, that one, that one stung. Hadn't thought about that law in a while or that application. Or, wow, what a salvation. I've forgotten about that promise. Isn't it amazing? And it's not just old age. It's, it's, it's well, okay, so it is partly old age. Uh, I said no, it's not just old age. It's the nature of, of men. We just, we just forget. It's the nature of disciples. We forget. And Peter, when he writes his, his first epistle, he said, I'm just writing to remind you of things. And that's what preachers do for you. They just remind you of stuff. And if you're an expert... If you're a religion professor, uh, you need to sit on the front row in church, listen very carefully, just like the fifth grader, because you forget. And you forget its application to you. It's, a, it's the same thing here. And Moses is getting ready to go on to be with the Lord. Moses knows he's not crossing over. These people are getting ready to cross over. Moses is going to be going up to Mount Nebo here shortly, and he's going to be buried. 
But he's saying, even though I'm leaving you, the law is not leaving you and God is not leaving you. And it's, it's like any of our fathers, if they know the Lord, they're going to want to say to us, now you boys carry on. I'm passing the baton on to you. And Moses is saying, now when you all get over there, I want you to set up some stones. And of course, you know, as soon as they cross the Jordan, they got 12 stones and set them up right there. But the stones he's talking about are the ones particularly that are in Shechem that are, that'll take them a little while to get across and go over there. But when you get to Shechem, or Shechem as some would call it, uh, I want you to set up these stones on Mount Ebal and on Mount Gerizim, especially here on Mount Ebal. And I want you to take stones like a grave marker. I want you to plaster it over. And then you can, you can carve on that plaster and put the law of God so the people will always see it. Just like you and I take up our Bibles and we're to read them every day. There it is. There's the stone with plaster on it. It's your Bible. It's, it's our modern technique of, of recording God's Word. It's right there. And praise be the Lord. You don't have to walk down to some park somewhere and read it off the markers. You can get it right on your Bible. So he's saying, remember the law, verses 1 through 8. Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And how do we remember it? Well, first of all, verses 1 through 4, write the law in plain sight. Just like your Bibles are in plain sight. You need them. They're exceedingly important to you. And your Sunday school teacher may have died. Your old preachers may have died. But that book is right there in front of you. And Moses is saying, you all take that up now and you remember to read it. Write it out. Be sure you buy your Bible. Get one you can understand. If you need a study Bible, get one of those. But read the thing, he's saying. Write the law in plain sight. And then in verses 5 through 8, we saw this. Include the law in worship. Include the law in worship. He says, you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. So where you have the law, where you have the word of God, be sure you have worship going on. Why is this? Well, two reasons. One is the law of God motivates us to worship. Just, just look at David in Psalm 19 when he sings these high praises, these encomiums of the law of God. He's in love and he praises the Lord in the midst of it. And that's exactly what we're to do because the law reveals God's character and his work. And when we say law, we, we mean the whole Old Testament. And in that Old Testament, he reveals who he is and reveals what he has done for us. And that inspires any regenerate person to worship. And you'll find right here, he says, don't just put the law down. It's not just an academic experience. It is a religious experience. It is a spiritual experience. And you're to go to worship. So when you read your book, you read the Bible in the mornings, you have your devotionals at night, wherever it is, you go to prayer and worship. You'll see the two of them are always put together. So the first thing is the law motivates us to worship. But secondly, the law regulates our worship. The law tells us how to worship God. The Psalms show us how to talk to Him from a variety of human experiences. You can be very low. You can be very high. You'll always find a Psalm to suit. The Psalm is our hymn book. So learn how to express yourself to the Lord. Learn biblically how to do it. And you know, of course, when the Levites and the priests ignored the regulations in the Old Testament for worship, they were in big trouble. Some of them died over it. So God cares how we worship Him. And that's, that's for another day. But you can see here how the covenant is remembered. It's remembered by remembering the law. We write it in plain sight and we include the law in our worship. Now let's look at verses 9 and 10. 
Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. What is he saying? Not just remember the law, but remember who you are. He says, you have become the people of the Lord today. Now, of course, they were already people of the Lord. But they're renewing their covenant. And they're going to be renewed even as they cross the Jordan. Why? Well, they're going to see that the Jordan is piled up in flood stage. It's held up for them. And they're going to remember who they are. They're the people that God cares so much about. He piles up the waters for them so that even at flood stage, they can walk through the, the riverbed of the Jordan River. Amazing. Don't forget who you are. So as you're listening to the Word of God, you're not just lit, reading it or listening to it as, as would any outsider. No, you're listening to it as a child. Remember who you are when, when you read the Bible. You're a son of the one who inspired it. He's your papa. Listen to him because he loves you. He's also very powerful. And you revere him and you have a close, intimate, eternal relationship with him. So remember who you are. So when, when we're remembering and renewing the covenant, it involves the word and it involves the memory and a knowledge of who we are when we listen to him. It's amazing. I can remember as a young person from time to time reading the Bible because I had to. I was taken to Sunday school. But I didn't read it as a child, a child of God. I read it as a physical child. But I didn't read it as a child of God. But when I got converted, 25 years of age, I read that book and it was personal. It was though someone were speaking right into my ear and telling me things and wooing me and loving me and encouraging me. It was an amazing difference because I, I then knew who I was in Christ. And that's what Moses is saying. Remember who you are. Now, <clears throat> thirdly, as we look at verses 11 through 26, uh, we must remember the consequences. Verse 11, That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing by, made by the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Look at the next one. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Misleads a blind man. Perverts the justice due to the sojourner fatherless and widow. Lies with his father's wife. Lies with any kind of animal. Uh, don't raise your hand if you need to hear that one. Uh, lies with his sister. Lies with his mother-in-law. Strikes down his neighbor in secret. Uh, verse 25. Takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, let's say it together, Amen. This is amazing. So here you have a ritual that he's telling us to engage. Verses 11 through 14, engage the ritual. And here was the ritual. 
He says, I want some of, some of the tribes to stand over here on the, uh, on the uh, Mount Gerizim and some over here on Mount Ebal. And if you, if you ever get to go to uh, Shechem, or as our Jewish friends call it, Shechem, you, you will see these two mountains standing right there uh, over the little village of Shechem. And he says, all right, I want these tribes over here, and I want them to stand on that mountain, and I want them to announce all the blessings. And I want these tribes to stand over here in this mountain and announce all the curses. And when I taught Deuteronomy in, in Kazakhstan earlier this year, I just, we just called a timeout on our class. And I had some people go over here and stand up on a big platform, and I had people go over here and stand up on a platform, and they just read the curses and the blessings. And I had everybody in the middle stand up, just listen. It's kind of an experience. And uh, that's exactly what Moses had in mind. When you all renew the covenant, I want you just to hear the consequences of walking with the Lord. And I want you to hear the consequences of not walking with the Lord. Just remember the consequences. And it's helpful to do that on occasion. And that's the reason it's important for us to engage the ritual that's here. And we have our own rituals, don't we? That's the reason communion is important. You say, you know, I've been to communion a thousand times. You know, the minister gets up there, he says generally the same words. He takes the bread and he breaks it, takes the cup and he pours it, then he distributes it. What's the big deal? You're not listening very carefully. You're not watching very carefully. Engage these rituals that are given to us. Jesus gave us that one. Do this in remembrance of me. So when the bread is broken, think about it. There's the dramatic presentation of Jesus breaking his body for us and what happened on the cross. Think about it. Listen to the snap when that, that dry bread breaks. Watch it when the liturgist breaks it. That's meant to be very important. You don't have to be reading your bulletin, you know, but not to be looking up, counting the number of pipes across the back of the chancel. <laughs> yeah, I know yeah, I, I did that too the other day. Uh, <laughs> but put your eyes right on what's happening and enter into that ritual. It's very important. And in some cases, we pour the cup. You see the blood being poured. Think about that blood being poured out. Blood. You know, we, some of you who are physicians, you're very good at looking at blood. A lot of us, we don't like to see blood at all, especially if it's our own. That'll, that'll cause you to gasp when you see your own blood on the floor. What's, what's leaking? You know, it's scary. And think of Jesus watching his own blood pour out and all the while doing it for us. So you engage the ritual of communion. You think about it. And then you're noticing that it's a meal, that we're being fed by it. And you actually take it and you eat it and you drink. And your body is being nourished physically. Well, Christ is nourishing us spiritually. He's at the table with us. As a matter of fact, it's at a table, which means what? He's providing for us and inviting us to eat His meal with Him in His house. So we're coming to His house at His table. What's the meaning of that? Well, you don't have table fellowship in the Middle East unless you are reconciled and friends with the person with whom you're eating. So the very fact that He invites you to His table means you are His friend and you are reconciled to Him. It's an amazing thing to think about that. Engage the ritual. And when the elements are distributed to all, think about it. Jesus Christ died and provided nourishment that all of His brothers would be fed. Think about it. You engage the ritual. The same with baptism. 
Think about what's being symbolized in baptism. You engage these rituals. Why do we go to church every Sunday? What's the difference between Sunday and Monday or Wednesday night or any other time of the week? Why is it important to do it every week? Here's why. You engage the ritual. It's called the Lord's Day. He was raised from the dead on Sunday. Friday is sad. Sunday's coming. And every Sunday comes. And we go to church. Why? We engage the ritual, the festival. It's a festival of the resurrection. And we're very happy about it. So we get ourselves happy no matter what our circumstances are. No matter how much cancer may have racked our body or somebody else's. No matter how many losses we've suffered in this life. No matter how many relationships have been broken and how many disappointments we have, we get ourselves happy on the Lord's Day. Why? It's a festival of the resurrection and we engage the ritual of being happy. And so you go to work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and you're remembering Sunday and about Thursday you start to wear out. But you're headed for Sunday again and you engage the ritual. Why? Rituals are important. It's important for you to remember you should be happy. You've got every reason in the world to be happy. Don't forget it. Go to church on Sunday. Get yourself cleaned up. Get your voice warmed up and sing praises to the Lord and get yourself happy. It's the ritual on the Lord's Day. And God has given us these things. Why? We forget. And you know how your mind gets downright pagan when you hadn't read the Bible for a while? Isn't it amazing? It doesn't take very long. And you just feel kind of dried up and feel a little bit directionless. That's because you need to remember. You need to engage the rituals. That's what he's saying to them. Engage the ritual. Then in verses 15 through 27 that we read, he's saying affirm the warning. What what do we mean by this? Well, he says, and all the people shall say, and we say it again, amen. What did we say amen to? Our cursing. (laughs) How did we get tricked into that? Well, we didn't get tricked. Basically, we engage the ritual again. We come to the table and the bread is broken and the blood is poured out. And what was that cup that Jesus took for us? It was the cup of God's wrath. And we engage the ritual again and we remember what happens to sinners. There's a curse. And we acknowledge that it's deserved. And therefore we say, Amen. So be it. That when sinners sin against God, they invoke His curse. So be it. And so much so that if we turn our back on the Lord, we shall be accursed. So be it. And this is what it means to enter into covenant with God. We burn the bridges. So be it. If we ever, if we ever think about going back and crossing that river, may we drown because the bridge is burned. So be it. And so when you come to Christ, you pronounce a curse on every road back to Egypt. So be it. And that's exactly what they do here. They're affirming the warning. Now notice these, what these curses are all about. We put them in several categories here. First of all, praise God alone in verse 15. The first, the first curse has to do with our choosing some other God, some other way. That we're saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. You can follow Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or, or some other figure. 
and it really doesn't matter. Uh, may we be accursed. So be it. If we abandon the uniqueness of Jehovah. Secondly, verses 16 through 17, he uh, curses those who do not preserve the family. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. Anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. That is, changes the family heritage and inheritance. That's what the landmark was all about. It was your family's inheritance. Cursed be anyone who destroys the economic support that a family needs to survive. Cursed be anyone who destroys the authority structure of the family by dishonoring father or mother. So you can see it starts off, look, you can see what the concerns are here of Moses. Uh, he starts off with the first and second commandments, then he goes to the fifth commandment. And so we're, we're going to worship God alone in all of his uniqueness, and then we're going to preserve the family. Thirdly, we're going to promote social justice. And isn't it interesting, we're really dealing here with the big three of the prophets. If you were to take the three most common things they preach against in the prophets, major and minor prophets, you get them right here. It's idolatry, sexual immorality that destroys the family, and social injustice right there. This is the order of the curses. And then, of course, sexual purity in verses 20 through 23. Anyone who lies with the wrong person. You've got one person you can lie with, lie down with, and that would be your covenant wife. She must be the opposite gender. She must belong to the Lord, and you must be have promised yourself to her in marriage so that you've made all the obligations, uh, all the promises, uh, because marriage has two lines, the promissory line and the physical line. So before you have this one, you need this one. If you go ahead and have this one, then you need to follow up quickly with this one so that you have a genuine uh, marriage with integrity. That's the person you're supposed to lie down with, nobody else. And it's interesting, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6 and Revelation 21, both Paul and the Apostle John tell us people who violate that are not going to be found in heaven. Now, not anyone who sinned. Otherwise, I don't think any of us in this room will be there. Uh, but those who continue in that practice unrepentantly. So unrepentant adulterers will not be found in heaven. Why? Because unrepentant adulterers are not believers. No matter what they say, they may profess belief, but genuine belief leads to repentance. In every case. So you'll find the curses also in the New Testament. Uh, there's a curse uh, at the second coming for those who are not in Jesus Christ. And it involves every aspect of their lives, including their sexual practice. And then in verses 24 and 25, uh, you see this destruction of human life that is cursed. An unrepentant murderer will not be found in heaven as well. And then lastly, he says in verse 26, Practice the whole law. Cursed be anyone who does not conform or does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Now, Paul quotes that verse in Galatians chapter 3 to say, The curse is on anyone who does not obey the law of God. That would be a curse on every one of us because all of us are lawbreakers. So there are these curses. Announced. Now, I want you to notice something interesting about these. If you'll look in verses 15 and 24, at the beginning of this list and the end of the list, he uses the word in secret. And one commentator has pointed out, I think wisely, that these curses are announced largely on sins that others don't necessarily notice. They're the secret sins. 
Uh, oftentimes your sexual life is secret to you and to the other person with whom you have it. Uh, you can secretly move a neighbor's landmark. You can disobey your father and mother in the secrecy of your home. You can actually commit murder in secret. You can actually, verse 15, commit idolatry in secret. But here's Moses' point. It may be in secret with respect to human beings, but it's not in secret with respect to God. Cursed is the one who sins before the face of God because before Him it is not in secret. He's making a very important point here that it is our whole lives, public and private. It's our whole lives, what everybody sees and what everybody doesn't see because God sees it all. And it all comes under the light of His Word and under the judgment of His character. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? This is the reason that Paul says in uh, Romans 3, verse 20, every mouth is shut by the law of God. If God is judging every secret sin, every public sin, I'm toast. I have no defense. I cannot say I'm good enough to go to heaven. I can't say that I've finally been a Christian long enough and done enough good deeds that I have enough merit now to get into heaven. Every mouth is shut, he says, whether Jew or Gentile, whether religious or irreligious, every mouth is shut before the law of God. And that's one of the law's purposes. So we see it here in the Old Testament. Now let's look at chapter 28. And he goes on to show us that we not only remember and renew the covenant, but we obey it. The covenant must be obeyed. And in the first 14 verses, he says, you will be blessed if you obey. Let's look at it. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself as He has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity the fruit in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give you the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods, to serve them. Oh, wow. Blessings. Blessings from the Lord. And see what he says about them. First of all, these blessings take us high above all others. These blessings will set us above all the other peoples of the world. And you can see how this blessing and cursing is a missiological phenomenon as well. 
We ought to be experiencing so much blessing, he says to Israel. You ought to be experiencing so much blessing that all the other nations can see your blessing and they want to walk in the way of the blessing. They want to be one of you guys. It's kind of like when Daniel was in exile in Babylon. He says, let us eat according to the Old Testament dietary rules and then you check us out a few weeks later and see if we're not blessed. And they did that. They obeyed God and then then the people in the palace took a look at him and said, we're going to put everybody on that diet. And what the Lord is saying, if you'll walk with me, you're so blessed that everyone wants to come in. Why do people, why are people not storming the gates of the church to get in? Because there's so much disobedience that it, the blessing of God's not being experienced in its fullness. So people aren't beating the doors to come in. He says, look, I'll put you high above all the other nations. And then notice it's all by grace. Look at this language. Isn't it beautiful? And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. That is, you'll be flooded with blessings. As he says to Israel in their tithing, if you will give a tithe to the Lord cheerfully, He will open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you cannot contain it all. The blessing will just overtake you. If you were trying to run away from it and get away from the blessing, it will just swarm you over like an ocean wave. This is grace. It's just more than you can possibly imagine. More than you ever asked for. So that Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours. And what is the great blessing for us today? We're in Christ. We have the love of the Father. And it doesn't matter what our temporary outward circumstances are our souls are full of the love of god we've been overtaken by the blessing of god that's what it means to be a son of his that's what he's saying here even in the old covenant it's by grace it's more than you it's it's the opposite of what you deserve and it's simply because you're walking with him not because you have a perfect record but you're just walking with him and he overtakes you and then notice that it's in all of life it's in the city and in the field it's fertility in the womb, the ground, the livestock. It's when you come in and it's when you go out. It's protection from your enemies on the outside. It's so close to the Lord that others can see it. All of this is part of our blessing in those first 14 verses. It's wonderful. <clears throat> and then we get to verse 15. All the way through verse 68. And look at the print. Look at all those curses. Wow. Hey, Lord, uh, can we balance this out just a little bit here? We got 14 verses over here on blessing. And then we got, <clears throat> what's 68 minus 14? I believe that's 54 verses on cursing. Lord, uh, what's this all about? Well, here's what it's all about uh, it's all about what God anticipates and what Moses anticipates you're going to do. And we've mentioned this before, but in Deuteronomy, the slant of it is that God knows what we're going to do with this. With all the warnings and all the promises, He knows that you're going to cross your hairy toe across the line and go the other direction. And so obviously this book is written for sinners. It's not written for perfect people. It's not written for obedient people. It's written for sinners. And so we get all these curses. Why? Because this is actually the route we're going to choose. So let's just have it out now. This is what's going to happen to you. And all these things happen. Every one of them. 
So God is giving us detail. Now, why does He tell us ahead of time? Here's why. When you do that, and you get yourself in that big mess that you're in, and you don't think there's any way out, you just go back and see what God said. And you'll see a couple of things. Number one, I told you so. I'm not surprised by it. When you walk that way, of course you're not going to experience the blessing of God. I told you so. But secondly, He's telling you because He told you so, and now He's going to tell you how to get back. Now, why do I say this? Because if you'll look at Second, First and Second Chronicles, some people say, what's the difference between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? They seem to cover the same history. Second, First and Second Chronicles have a spiritual angle to them. They're written for a spiritual purpose. And here's the purpose, that when you get in trouble, you know how to get back. At the end of Second Chronicles, we are told that the curses came upon Israel because they abandoned Jehovah and he took them into captivity. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, these famous verses If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, what context is that put into? It's when Solomon dedicates the temple. And the context is when my people have been disobedient and the heavens don't provide rain anymore, no more fertility, and there's no more fruit coming from the ground, if they'll turn to me and pray again, I will hear them. Second, first and second chronicles are written to remind us of how a few kings were revived through turning to the Lord, repenting of their sins, and praying to Him. And first and second chronicles have special stories of people who did just that, and God heard their prayer and renewed them. So he's and they are preaching right from Deuteronomy. You heard it said, this is what's going to happen when you turn your back on me. And here it is. I told you, and here it is. But here I'm telling you something else. There's a way out of it. And so Deuteronomy provides the social commentary on Israel's political experiences from then forward. And all you have to do if you want to be able to interpret the times in Israel from this, the 13th century, all the way up to the time of Christ. If you want the document that explains what's happening, the cultural commentary, it's right there. The blessings and the curses. And when you turn your back on Jehovah, you're going to live like a cursed life. And then you repent. And there's a way back. Now that's the reason that you get the heavy cursing. It's because here's, we need to be warned because this is written for sinners who are very likely to choose the path of cursing instead of the path of blessing. And we need to have a commentary, an exegesis of our times that shows us why things aren't working right. If you want to know why society is falling apart in many ways, all you got to do is look to the curses that are in Deuteronomy. And you want to know, what do I do about it? Hey, i got a, I got a, a real simple answer. Why don't you turn to the Lord? Why don't you repent? That's the message. That's the reason that when John the Baptist came and when Jesus came, they said, the time is at hand. 
The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. There's your answer. The kingdom in its glory is now being ushered in. Repent and believe. All the problems that we're facing are explained right here in these curses because God is personally related to this earth. And when this earth goes into rebellion, we get His reaction because He's a holy God. Now what's sad is there are some folks who have a very hard time with this concept about God. It just seems a little bit too mean and nasty for God to be a God who curses. What we have to realize is that God is not the way you want Him to be. God is the way He is. And the way He is is perfect. So however you wanted God to be, that's contrary to the Bible, is probably the root of your wickedness. Because you've created a God in your mind that doesn't exist, but that has become your God. And that standard is the standard you use to measure the one true and living God Himself. So now the one true living God who really is, is now judged by your standard of who you'd like God to be. And some people even write books about it and try to convince us that their view of who God is in their head is the true God. And the God who reveals Himself in this book is judged by His thoughts. And we just had this happen. In fact, if you, if you get Time Magazine, you got the article this week, didn't you? Uh, what if there is no hell, John Meacham writes uh, for Time Magazine. Now, this kind of recalls the Time Magazine article. Was it 1966? You, know, the, the, you remember that one? The black front and just had these words, Is God dead? <laughs> it created a huge stir about 45 years ago. Uh, here, here, here's another article. I think they're trying to uh, get the same emotion, but they won't because people don't care as much. But the front of the cover is, what if there is really no hell? And the subtitle has to do with this controversy uh, that's been stirred up by a book written by Rob Bell, who's a very popular author. Some of you would know him uh, in Michigan. And he's written a book called Love Wins. And the basic thesis of the book is that love wins in the end, that God didn't really mean all those things he said about anger and wrath and judgment, that those were just figures of speech or they were things to warn us, but that finally in the end there will be no hell. Hell is what the misery you make for yourself in this life. And hell will be if you go to heaven and you don't really love Jesus, you won't like it very much, so it will feel like hell to you. And here's a man who's making up his own terms of heaven and hell, of blessing and curse and God's judgment, who hasn't really obviously come to grips with God's real character. God reveals his real character in the Bible so that not only does love win in the end, but holiness wins too. And justice and judgments and purity and righteousness win in the end as well. And what's the problem? It's to bring justice and righteousness together with love. That is the problem. And you can solve it one of two ways. You can say nobody's going to heaven because God is so holy that he he will obviously curse every single human being and they all deserve it. That would be one way to deal with it. He's a God of holiness and justice. And that would be justice. Or on the other hand, you could say, well, God is loving. He's so loving, he wouldn't even send my kitty cat to hell. Maybe my kitty cat. I don't know about yours. But uh, he, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't send a human being to hell. He's not that mean. So we solve the problem that way and just say he's love. Or you can have God send his one and only son 
who lives a perfect life and who deserves to be in the presence of God. He deserves it. And He dies a perfect death in the place of sinners and removes the wrath off of sinners who trust in Him. And He gives the credit for His righteousness to everyone who believes in Him so that now God's holiness is sustained and His love is sustained. And that's what the Bible does. And those who do not receive Jesus Christ are still standing in their sin. That's what the Bible tells us. They're still under the curse. Rob Bell uh, quotes, of course, John 3.16. And then, in fact, why don't you turn there to John 3.16. He quotes that famous verse. And then he also quotes verse 17 and says, You see, Jesus didn't come to condemn people. He came to save people because verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son... This is page 2025. God did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So Rob says, You see, that's God's intent. And of course you want to say, Rob, would you please read the next verse in your Bible, uh, which says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then verse 36, Rob, would you please read that? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains on him. That is, the wrath was already there because the man deserved it. This book is just full of misrepresentations. If you, if you have read the book or want to read it and you'd like to see an answer to it, look up under the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition, just uh, uh, Google them. And then look up under uh, Steve, I'm sorry, Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung has written about a 20-page response to the book. Uh, so if you want to get into the controversy beyond what Time Magazine has and see an intelligent Bible-believing response to uh, Rob Bell's heresies. Uh, You'll see it in the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, And you can put it on a PDF and read it that way if you prefer. But it's our natural reaction. If I have to deal with God like this, I'm just going to change the rules. I'm going to change God. I'm going to change the Bible. I'm going to misread the Bible. I'm going to impose my view of kindness on God. I want God to be as nice as I am. And what Moses is saying to the children of Israel before he dies and before they go over into the Holy Land, which is not holy at all. It's only holy because God made it holy. It's not holy because of its character. It's got all kinds of evils in it. And before Moses sends them over there, he says, remember the law. Remember the rituals so that you remember God. And he is not your uncle. He's not your grandmother. He is pure and He is holy. And there are consequences to disobedience. And when you disobey Him, you'll need to come back through the narrow gate. You can't just say, well, God, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner and you forgive. I did my business. You did yours. So we have a deal. Now you come through the narrow gate of humility and repentance and restoration and of faith. And you come back to Him that way. That's what he's teaching us. You will be cursed if you disobey. And notice in verses 15 through 19, we don't have time to read all of it, but it basically is the reverse of verses 3 through 6. 
Verses 15 through 19 says you'll be cursed in the city and you'll be cursed in the field. You'll be cursed in the womb. You'll be cursed in your livestock. He just does the exact opposite of the blessings. And then it's not only all of life, but it is, it is in horrific captivity. He says, you shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. And here, the captivity of Assyria for the northern kingdom and captivity of Babylon for the southern kingdom is predicted right here by Moses in the 13th or 14th century. So it doesn't come as any surprise to God when it happens. He's predicted it. He said, if you disobey me, there's going to be a captivity. And indeed that happens. And then look in verses 58 through 68. What's really interesting here and sad and tragic is that basically what happens is what we might even call the reversal of redemption. And he uses the word Egypt. If you look in verse 60, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you. And then look at verse 68, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. These people were delivered out of slavery from Egypt 40 plus years ago. And Moses is saying, you want to disobey God who delivered you out of Egypt and divided the Red Sea? He'll take you back in ships to slavery. And you'll serve those other gods that you used to serve. If you turn your back on me, you'll get what you're facing, which is the other gods. And all their brutality and violence towards you. Is that what you want? He's pleading with us. He's pleading with us. Just like Jesus pled with His disciples. And just like the apostles pled with the Jews and the Gentiles. Flee from the wrath to come. Don't leave yourself hanging out there standing on your own record or you'll be toast. And where does this lead us? leave us? Well, it leaves us in dire need. Because as we look at a text like this, every single one of us knows that if all the accounts were put out on the table and honest judgment were given, we're all on the curse side and not the blessing side. We all know that we've disobeyed the law. We've all from time to time turned our back on God. Where does this leave us? It leaves us in deep weeds. It leaves us under the judgment of God according to our own personal performance. But the second question is, where does this lead us? It leads us to call out to God and say, Lord, save us. Hosanna. God save us. That's what Hosanna means. Lord, save us. Lord, help us. Lord, we're in dire straits here. For we've done just what you predicted. In our flesh, we've turned our back. In our flesh, there is no good thing. Help us. And the Lord hears the cry of His people just as surely as He did when they were in Egypt. And He heard their cry. He hears our cry. And He heard the cry of the first century B.C. and the second century B.C. and all the way back to Abraham. All the way back to Adam and Eve. And He answered our cry with His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it leads us. It leads us right to Him. God's final, ultimate answer. The One who comes to relive for us what we couldn't do. Who goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and is tempted there by the devil himself. And he defeats the devil with the Word of God over and over again three times. And the devil flees from him and he's ministered to by angels. And then he gets up off his knees and he goes into his public ministry for three years where he lived a perfect life and he preached perfect sermons and he loved people perfectly and he healed the sick and he raised the dead. 
And then He goes to Jerusalem. Why? So that He can die in our place to pay the price for a broken covenant and to endure, listen to this, the curses. Do you realize what Jesus did? He took the curse of the covenant, brothers. That's the reason He came, was to take the curse of the covenant so that Israel would take it no more. And He took the eternal curse of the covenant for the sins of all of God's people. And He willingly took it upon Himself. And that's the reason He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Why had God forsaken Him? So that God wouldn't forsake you. So that you would experience the blessings of the covenant. He won them for you. He did it. And we simply now by putting our trust in Him and walking with Him, loving and desiring Him by just being near Him, by being united to Him, we get all the blessings of the covenant so that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms overtakes us. Not because we were good, but because we're His. That's what Jesus did on Monday, Thursday night, and particularly on Good Friday. And that's what was confirmed forevermore by the resurrection on Sunday morning is that you have a Savior and He has fully absolved you and cleansed you of all of your covenant breaking. And He now is the Lord and He now is worshipped and He now is loved and imitated by millions of people around the world who have come to realize that even in our disobedience, all the curses have fallen on Him. And all the blessings have fallen on us. Let's pray. Father, we are stunned again by the the beauty and the goodness of the Gospel. Forgive us for the many ways in which we too have sought to create some other worldview, some other view of You, some other some other hope of salvation, but Lord, there is none. And we pray for our friend Rob Bell that You will grant him spiritual and intellectual repentance and deep personal repentance so that he would embrace the real living God, a God who is wrathful against sin and a deeply loving God who has paid the ultimate sacrifice of Your own Son to deliver us from the clutches of that sin. We pray that we'll go our way today as men who are blessed and who know it and who keep the faith in Jesus Christ who has borne Your wrath on our account. And may we respond today in every circumstance as men who have truly been liberated. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all, gentlemen.